And it's the wind-up, it's the pitch, and it's Bill Mesnick and Rich Buckland, the splendid Bohemians. Hey. All right, the stadium is full, and it's time for another episode of this. And uh, we just came off a fabulous uh, discussion of the uh, Shangri-Las and their uh, fame, probably not fortune, but the, the fortune that they left us with in great memories and great music. How was that, Bill? Not bad, right? Poetically, that uh, was excellent. Politically excellent. sound. But now we're going to go from the voice of that uh, movement to the architect of the sound of that movement, Ellie Greenwich, who uh, unfortunately left us in two thousand and nine. Yes. yes, young, very young. But she wrote some of the iconic songs of that era: "Be My Baby," "To Do Ron Ron," "Leader of the Pack." Going back to uh, the Shangri-Las, do what Diddy Diddy from Manfred Mann and River Deep Mountain High. Pretty amazing. Mike and Tina. That's pretty what a, amazing. What a catalog. That's a pretty amazing. And that's input. just the scratching the surface. Yes, absolutely. To be able to have had that many iconic uh, writing credits in such a short period of time is 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 pretty amazing. Um, now, he, he, this is a young woman from Queens, New York, where we grew up. She was from Levittown. Levittown, Long Island. Yeah, that's right. So when she was talking in her interview about when she first met the Shangri-Las, who were these tough, gum-cracking girls from Queens, they they made fun of her because she was, you know, little Miss, uh, you know, Suburbia from Levittown with the Peter Pan collar. And she was trying to give them notes. And they said, you know, F you. We don't have to listen to you. So she had a, a problematic relationship with the girls uh, of the Shangri-Las. But she eventually won them over, and they made some big hits. Well, Levittown, you know, it's it's interesting, this whole transfer of, uh, of, of culture to the suburbs. And Mary Weiss and uh, her sister and... These were kids from the streets who really understood more about uh, about being tough than being from uh, a community that was built after World War II to accommodate getting out of the city. So I think there's a lot of where that, that potential resentment came from. That's what Levittown was built upon. Uh, but so... It's not just a question of Ellie Greenwich having this uh, amazing ability by herself. She had partnership. She did uh, with Jeff Barry. But prior to Jeff, she in high school, she, when she was 14, she had a group called the Jivettes. And uh, she would play, you know, locally nursing homes and hospitals. And she did write. She was interested in writing. She uh, wrote a song called Cha Cha Charming uh, and recorded it as Ellie Gay. In 1958, but you know, she did a little. She went to Queens College. She uh, learned the accordion, but then she hooked up with. Uh, she went to Hofstra and stayed there not very long, but started pursuing work at the Brill Building, and that's really the the center, the hub, where it all happened. The Brill Building. So let's that's talk. That's where she she met Jeff. Bow, 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 did it, 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 did
right. So let's let's try to let's try to put some perspective into this uh, this whole ideal of the Brill Building. The Brill Building was a place where songwriters came in the morning. It's like a job. You work for a publishing company. You put yourselves in a room, and from morning until the time you go home, the idea is to write. Yeah. Hit pop songs. Yep. It's a factory. It's where yep. Neil Sedaka produced all of that, uh, all of that material that made him uh, a gigantic star. It's where I Cam- mean, can you imagine walking down the hall and you hear Carol King coming out of one room and Doc Palmas coming out of another, Lieber and Stoller coming out of another, Neil Sedaka, as you said. I mean, the songs that they produced in this factory, uh, you know, may be formulaic, but uh, they're in our consciousness forever. And they worked. I mean, every single one of them worked, I think, due to the idea that there was an understanding of the culture and the audience that they were attempting to uh, they were attempting to charm, and it's a time and place that was devoted to the idea that songwriting was a craft that could be learned. You were given opportunities, even if you knew nothing. There's a great scene in American Hot Wax where Lorraine Newman, American Hot Wax is a film that uh, portrayed the life of Alan Freed. And Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live plays this this young woman who who is always uh, in the street trying to meet stars and, and Alan Freed. And she's kind of the uh, figure Carol King. It's, it's a figure based on Carol King. But that was very, very true. I mean, you could be on the street, you have an idea, you hum a song, you're invited to try to write it for Alan. Yeah, I somehow, I somehow wish that we had been around during that time. I think we would have had Because I think more, we would have done yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I think because we identified with the culture so much. And what happened, I believe, with our time period is we got, we got distracted by the 60s, the later 60s, Prolific, right? Of folk sure. and blues and Dylan's poetry and uh, everything and, had to be self-confessional. Every right, you know? right. It was a whole different. These songs were written for the masses. These yeah. were written for the masses. How how Bob Dylan wound up being able to convey his abstract thoughts to the masses is a story that will be discussed for eternity. Yeah, but it but eternity really is up on the roof. Oh, man. When this whole world starts letting you down, people are just too much for me to bear. Yeah, but even Bob Dylan played piano for Bobby V. Yes, he did. But you know, there's been some conflicting reports that that's even a true story. Well, it was brief. It was a very brief. Yes, uh, a brief encounter. And then I don't think Bobby even remembered. He got fired because he couldn't play. That's what what they say. Yes, that's what... (laughs) That's what they say. And Bobby V comes back after uh, the night has a thousand eyes years later to become a folk rock uh, artist using his real name as Bobby Darren, transferred his uh, name to his real, to his birth name. So th- there was this this curve. But getting, yeah. getting back but to But in the that brief origin, period of yeah. the late 50s, early 60s, it was that golden age where the Brill Building was buzzing with 
just really young talent, and and they were just cranking it out. Now, talking about Jeff Barry, uh, his once again the association with uh, the Shangri Las and that whole death disc uh, culture. His first top ten hit was "Tell Laura I Love Her," um, and uh, you know uh, he he married Ellie in 1962, and they were became Phil Spector's primary songwriters. First of all, Be My Baby, and we had mentioned this in the last episode, this is a life-changing event, as Brian Wilson has has addressed numerous times. There is something about that pounding Hal Blaine drum beat. Uh, boom, 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 boom. It just sets uh, an, an emotive force in your head that in combination with these young women's voices, it compels you. Something is being compelled. It was that thing about being able to be to be young and innocent in a, during <laughs> right before the storms were going to take hold. Uh, and Ellie Greenwich had this understanding, as Spectre had this understanding, that. Uh, this was this was going to sell. This teenage angst was going to sell. Yeah, and um, the 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 of course the the partnership with Phil Spector was very felicitous for both or all three people. But um, she they also wrote Hanky Panky for Tommy James and the Shondells and Do What Diddy Diddy for uh, Manfred Mann. There she was, just walking down the street singing. Do what did it, did it, done, did it, do. Tapping her fingers and shuffling her feet singing. Do what did it, did it, done, did it, do. She looked good, she looked fine. She looked good, she looked fine. And I nearly lost my mind. Before I knew it, she was walking next to me singing. And uh, they were just on fire. But it's interesting. I think the story of Ellie Greenwich is more about a woman in a man-dominated um, industry and how she was able to navigate and, uh, and, uh, and really be successful. And, of course, she says she credits Jeff's protection yeah, in regards to being a woman in this male-dominated industry, from this interview, 
that Ellie gave in 1984, around the time that they were producing the uh, the revival uh, Leader of the Pack show at the bottom line, which ended up on Broadway. Um, she said, when asked, what was it like being a woman in an industry? She said, well, I was a piano player, um, not a lyricist. Most of the girls were lyricists. So like Carol King, because she was a piano player, it made her a little more of an anchor. Um, and, um, you know, she became, in, in when she started producing, she figured out, I had to become one of the guys. I started wearing pants and, um, you know, I accepted the world as it was. That's life. And uh, she was very respected and not harassed uh, walking the halls of, of, of those powerful places. Interestingly, her marriage did not last that long. They, they, by 1966, they were separated, but they kept working together. Now, that's got to be a trip. I mean, because you're, what, you're composing these songs of romantic, the majority of them are, are romantic uh, songs, and you're reliving your relationship with every note being composed with your ex. And yeah. I've always wondered how that how that works. You really have to have a full, vital understanding of songwriting in order to make that work. Because of, otherwise, you're going to be uh, you're going to be a train wreck. But I always well, had that respect. One of the, yeah, one of the things that that sort of revitalized their partnership at that time was Neil Diamond. They discovered Neil Diamond. And uh, they wrote for him, and they uh, Diamond subsequently was signed to Burt Burns Bang Records, which we've discussed in previous episodes, and had a number of hits: Cherry Cherry, Kentucky Woman, and and Barry and Greenwich uh, teamed with Phil Spector one last time uh, on uh, I Can Hear Music, recorded by the Ronettes in '66, then subsequently. Uh, the Beach Boys in 69, and River Deep Mountain High, which Spectre produced for Icantina. So um, they kept working together. And there's some incredible music. I mean, there's just some incredible songwriting there. And to have gone into the River Deep Mountain High period, which must have been a disappointment given the uh, suggested success of that particular album and its failure 
to really yeah. do the business that it was supposed to do. The song still remains, it still remains a, uh, a monument to that kind of songwriting uh, because it was very different. It was a very, very aggressive arrangement. And I don't know how the original song was constructed, but the arrangement as Spectre had detailed it uh, is one of the most significant changes in popular music at that particular yeah, time. Yeah, that's a dynamic song. Uh, it w- went to number three in the UK, but it only went to 88 in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very disappointing numbers. Mm. But uh, for Ellie Greenwich, uh, after that, the solo career was uh, a struggle. And uh, so there was a, uh, I, for Jeff Barry, he kept working at a pretty high level. But I think she uh, she struggled maybe until, uh, mm, yeah, like she was singing back up for Debbie Harry, you know, in the Blondie album. I mean, she was probably a bit at sea until until the uh, revival in 84. So what do you think her legacy is really composed of? I mean, no pun intended. I mean, the, when, you, when you take into account the young female writers uh, of that particular period, where did she stand on your list of, uh, of greats? Well, in, in 2009, uh, posthumously, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, I think that period of the Brill Building being fundamental rock and roll building block, uh, she is at the top of the heap, you know, along with Carole King. Yeah, I think that when you when you translate all of these amazing songs and these very significant careers, they have to wind up at numbers one and two. And at times they're interchangeable, but because of Carol King's success with Tapestry, uh, the kind of achievement that Ellie Greenwich was never able to capture and very few artists, male or female, were able to capture. Do you remember the dominance of that record on the charts? Carole- oh, yes. That was everywhere. And it was the probably one of the biggest records in history. In history. And I, I can't help but wonder where Ellie Greenwich may have felt she missed that particular boat because... Well, maybe if she had had Lou Adler, uh, you know. <laughs> really? Every, right? Right? I mean, the, pro, these producers were also the... Uh, they play a, a direct role in how your career is going to... Uh, uh, go down the tracks and Ellie has this association with Phil Spector and we know the instability that Phil Spector was renowned for. Lou Adler. It's a very interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting when she was talking about Phil Spector in this interview, she says, of course, any story you've heard is true, but <laughs> Jeff, she said, Jeff and I got his vulnerability. Uh-huh. And so they, you know, they related to him on a, a more tender level. Yeah, yeah. Well, they if you're saying that they accepted his madness, it's almost like what Leonard Cohn was saying about working with Spectre on Death for a Ladies' Man. 
this is a guy that put a Phil Spector puts a gun to Leonard Cohen's head, and he's still saying you can't help but love the guy. Yeah, um, no she did record. Like she did record a solo album in '67. Ellie Greenwich composes, produces, and sings. Released in '68, which produced two chart hits, "Nikki Hokey that made it to number one in Japan, and "I Want to Want You to Be My Baby." Uh, but you know, and she, she had a good uh, collaboration with Ellen Foley. Later. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And she did a couple of records with Ellen Foley. But Cindy Lauper was, I think, her biggest uh, fan and, you know, who had made large numbers. And and uh, she was very good friends and collaborators with Cindy Lauper. And I, I, there's a great quote that she she gives that Cindy Lauper said. I think it was Cindy Lauper who said she, she came to Ellie Greenwich for help in crafting her sound. And she said, I want to combine new wave and old wave and get permanent wave. <laughs> Which in a way is what we have because it will always remain permanent. I mean, these are, these, these songs are eternal and uh, it's, it's a career that um, provides great insight into a history of women attempting to break these barriers, especially at a time when you're hearing all this talk, and this is, of course, award season, and I, I was recently watching the Independent Film Awards, and the, the, women are evidently not this pursuit of women being given opportunity is this anthem that has been repeated, repeated, repeated. And we look back at a time when women were able to integrate themselves in industries that were male-dominated with what seems like the pure talent that they were given and didn't have uh, similar difficulties, nor did were these pleas exchanged. And I'm, yeah. I, I guess the point I am making is the adaptability of some of these creative creatures to adapt to to the environment uh, paid off, and yes. it created these uh, the ability to, to create iconic art in the face of what is a challenging system because it was created by, by, by men. But um, you have to have ultimate respect for what it must have been like at that particular time to break through these barriers. Right. So you're running down this list of men, uh, Phil Spector, Jeff Barry, um, uh, 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 Shadow Morton. Jerry you know, Goffin. All the, yeah. And all these people are basically calling the shots. But somehow... As she said, because she laid down the melodies, she was uh, she was indispensable. Yes, yes, and I think that's as you had as you had so eloquently stated that is really the legacy and uh, the path that that she provided in popular music, and uh, it's ingrained. It's it's ingrained. It's etched in every groove that we've ever heard that has her signature on it. So, so thank you, Ellie. Thank you so much. And thank you, Bill Mesnick, for providing a fine commentary on this particular, uh, on this particular performer and uh, wondrous writer. We're going we're gonna to dig into the archives here. You know what I think we need to do, Bill? We need to have an alternative rock hall of fame. Because we're not... We're, okay. Because we were talking about the Shangri-Las in our previous episode. How did the Shangri-Las avoid being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? 
How does Warren Zevon avoid being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Oh, that's a mystery. How does Joan Jett avoid being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? We need an alternative Rock Hall of Fame. And maybe we can start that right here with the, okay. Splend- with the Splendid Bohemians. It's just an it. idea. You can, you, can, you can carve this turkey any way you want, baby, but I'm going to come up with these ideas. So this is Rich Buckland, Bill Mesnick out on the coast. Here I am in Florida. We're going to go out and uh, and enjoy the day. Bill, I want you to enjoy your day. I want you to feel yes, good. Yes, I want to see uh, if our prediction for the Academy Awards Best Director, uh, which is tonight, uh, pans out. Yes, please give a listen to our Best Director episode as we take a little walk down uh, movie lane. And uh, we'll see if our prediction pans out. And... Uh, I also want to suggest something because I I want to give my pal Bill Mesnick great props here for a recorded release you can find on Amazon Music, and it's a beautiful recording. Nine nine hexagrams. Nine hexagrams. Nine hexagrams. You can find it on Spotify, uh, YouTube. It's all over the place. So please check it out because uh, I'm proud. Nine hexagrams, and I was playing this on my uh, on my JBL portable speaker, and it sounds beautiful on the on the little JBL or on the big pioneers. It's a wonderful recording. Please do check it out. Bill, I love you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs>